This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a uh, a stranger. So the first point is that this is, Joseph seems to have a plan. I don't know whether he's ever thought he'll meet his brothers. I don't know why it's spontaneously where he kind of seems to know what to do. But he doesn't just reveal himself to his brothers. It would have seemed the perfect opportunity. Oh, my brothers, this is perfect opportunity. Here I am, the prince of Egypt. It's all worked out fine. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He doesn't reveal himself straight away. And it's funny, often in, 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 in life, I, I've had moments where I've prayed, God, would you reveal yourself? Would you, would you show yourself to me? Would you do this? I remember one time, I was about 23, 24, uh, and I'd been reading my Bible. Uh, I was a good boy in those days. No, I was reading my Bible, and I'd been reading about the crucifixion. It just happened that was my daily reading. And, I'm, and then I kind of close my Bible and I pray, God, would you reveal yourself to me? I, I, I really would love to kind of have a vision of you or meet with you or something dramatic to prove that you love me. And I just felt a voice uh, of God say to me, what have you just read? What have you just read? And I think sometimes we look for, hey, I want my own personal dramatic revelation of God. I want my own personal dramatic revelation of God. But we don't, we forget that God's at work in our lives all the time. And God's at work in human history all the time. And so what happens is Joseph doesn't reveal himself, um, to, uh, to his brothers. He actually works a plan. He want, he pretends to be a stranger because he's, he wants to see his brothers changed. Uh, he risks the fact that his, uh, his, his father, who's getting old by now, might die. Because actually he thinks that his brothers coming to find God is more important than whether he sees his father alive or dead. There's something urgent about what Joseph's doing. He's not just thinking, aha, it's all worked out fine. What he wants to do, he wants his brothers to experience something of God to change them. So what he does, scene two then, um, is that he puts his, uh, his brothers in prison. And that's a picture of them throwing Joseph into the pit. And while they're in prison, they reflect on what they've done. And this is what it says in Genesis 42. Joseph said to them, it's just as I told you, you are spies. So he accuses them of being spies. But they replied, your servants were 12 brothers, the sons of one man who lives in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father, and one is no more. It's interesting. They are, that's there. What they did 15 years ago is still right there. It doesn't take much. A little bit of pressure. You're spies. And out it pops. There it is. Our one is no more. And so he put them all in the dungeon for three days. It's interesting. They're, they're put down 
in the dungeon. I think he probably puts them in the same dungeon he was in. And you can think, oh right, this is a perfect opportunity for revenge. Let them taste what I've tasted. But I don't think he's doing that. He's not committed to a, a, a revenge by accusing them of spying. He puts them down in the darkness. And he says this, he put them in the dungeon for three days. On the third day, that's going to come up again in the story somewhere later, isn't it? Maybe Easter. Anyway, but let's not do that. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. He uses their God, the name of their God, not the Egyptian gods, Elohim, we saw that last time. If you are honest men, testing their character, let one of your brothers stay here in prison. But you must bring your youngest brother to me so that you may not die. They said to one another, surely we are being punished because of our brother Joseph. What's happened is he says, you know, you've got to go and get your bro- uh, brother Benjamin and one of you got to stay in prison. And they don't know because Joseph spoke through an interpreter that he could understand them. And they're whispering as he's passing this judgment. They're whispering, this is what happened. It's you. Surely we're being punished because of our brother Joseph. And they, they remember what happened. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life. But we would not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. Reuben replied, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy, but you would not listen? It's already, they're totally unchanged. They're aware of their, of what they've done and they're saying, it's your fault. It's your fault. You wouldn't listen. He wouldn't listen. We wouldn't listen. Now we must give account for his blood. What is this God has done for us? They understand they understand this kind of sense that, they're, 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 that, that what they've done is come home to roost. They understand that if you do this thing, it's, if you do something evil, it's going to come home to roast. And when the pressure comes on them, they think this is it. This is the moment that it's come home to roost. And they're aware of their sin. It's so important, people, that we understand that, that actually, I know that it might not be happy and cheery, but you need to be aware of your sin. Not constantly, not Christians always like, oh, I'm terrible, I'm miserable. But actually the walk with God, the journey with God, progress with God, often starts with, I know that I've done wrong and God knows. Surely God knows we're being punished. This is right that, this is right that it's happening. Uh, and, I, and I think that it's really important that we do that. Uh, I mean, the Bible calls that kind of sense of awareness of sin uh, and then deciding to live differently, repentance. But we haven't got repentance yet in the brothers. What we've got is we've got this kind of sense where they feel sorry. They feel sorry for what they've done. They feel this kind of sense of, I'm aware that I've murdered my brother. We threw him in a pit and sold him to slavery. And they're aware of it. Their consciences are guilty. I used to work in a... Uh, in a Catholic school, and um, I used to talk to the, the kids about what does it mean to be, you know, what's it mean to be Catholic? And the one word they all said all the time was guilt. I just feel guilty. I just feel guilty. And I think, in one sense, they're kind of right, but that's not what it's supposed to stay. You're not supposed to stay guilty. You're supposed to be aware that you're guilty. You're aware that you've bro- that your life's broken, that you messed stuff up, that things have gone wrong, that stuff's happened to you, and that you've done stuff to others. It's important to be aware of that. But actually, that's not where it's, you're supposed to stay. Paul writes about uh, that in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, verse 9 and 10. It's interesting uh, what he says here. I think there's quite a lot of insight in here. He says, I'm happy. So Paul's writing, I'm happy. Not because you were made sorry but because your sorrow led you to repentance. 
For godly sorrow produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly sorrow produces death. It's interesting, he's, he's saying he's happy that they feel, it's almost if you talk about, he could be looking at these brothers and saying, he's happy they felt bad. He's happy they felt bad. But he's not happy they felt bad just because he wants them to feel bad. He's not like, that is the aim of Christianity, to make you feel bad. The aim of the exercise is not that you would feel bad, but the aim of the exercise is that you'd reflect on who you are and say, I need to change, I need to do something different. He says, I'm happy not because you are sorry or sad or grieving, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. When when you feel bad about something, you can stay here in self-pity and say, oh, my poor old life, and look what's happened to me. And, and, and But actually, you're supposed to say, no, actually... I feel sorry because I want to go to God. Or you can you can have this kind of what he calls worldly repentance, where you think, you know, I've been caught out, and people feel sad about that. I've I've known people that have had affairs, and they don't feel sorry because of the affair. They feel sorry that they're caught found out, and they think what that is not. That's not godly sorrow. They, they shouldn't think, oh, flip, I got found out. I've done it differently. Or people do a, a sinning or people do stuff. I mean, often people make, do crazy stuff. And then I get an email that says, it's the church's fault. I think, no, well, what, what's the issue here? You're just, un, you're just sad because people have told you the truth or you're just sad because you've been found out. That's not going to get you anywhere. What you're supposed to do is say, I need Jesus. I need Jesus. It's godly sorrow that means I repent. I'm saying I need Jesus. And so at this point, I don't think the brothers have come to repentance. They've got this sorrow. Oh no, God's going to punish us. But actually, God wants to move them from feeling sorry about what they've done. Not, oh, like, sorry, my life's worked out. I mean, sometimes people just feel like, well, they do sin, and then what happens? It comes bounding back, because that's what happens sometimes. You do something uh, wrong and what happens, it comes bounding back with a whole lot of consequences and people feel sorry for the consequences. You should know, I feel sorry because God's involved. Like the prodigal son says, I've sinned against heaven and against you. So the, so the brothers are brought out of the prison and told to go back. Uh, and it's two years. Two years they're waiting to go back. They don't want to go back. Uh, they, don't, they don't want to go back to Egypt because they think it's just going to turn bad. So they're living with this guilty stuff. And if you read the end of the uh, chapter t- uh, 42, they go back to their father and they recount what happened. They recount, oh, he told, we said we had one son. Uh, you had one son that's still with you. And he says, why didn't you tell him about him? And they said, and we had one son that, that, that died that was torn to pieces. And you get a kind of insight into their guilty consciences, that, but they don't know anything about it. I know people can live with a guilty conscience for years. Don't do anything about it. They'd rather live in famine land, Canaan, than say, I'm going to find fruitfulness. Let's carry on. So third scene, Joseph's brothers return to Egypt. This time they take Benjamin. Again, edited versions from, I think, this is the longest bit here. Uh, Genesis 43. Now the famine was still severe in the land, so when they'd eaten all the grain... They had brought from Egypt. Their father said to him, go back and buy us a little more food. But Judah said to him, the man, the man here is be Joseph. The man warned us solemnly, bring your brother down here. 
Then Judas said to, there's a bit of a debate then about, like, I'm not letting him go. You've one brother that I loved has died and you can't have the other one. And there's this big debate. And then Judas said to Israel, his father, send the boy along with me. This is really profound what he says. For I do, if I do not bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you all my life. Jacob replied, fine, take your brother also and go with the man, go to the man at once and may God Almighty, that's El Shaddai, that's the first time we get that name uh, in the Bible, El Shaddai, grant you mercy before the man so that he'll let you come back with your other brother, Simeon, and Benjamin come back with you. So the brothers took their gifts and double the amount of silver and Benjamin also and they hurried to Egypt to present themselves to Joseph. When Joseph saw that Benjamin was with them, he said to the steward of of his house, take these men to my house, slaughter an animal and prepare a meal. They are to eat with me at noon. Now the men were frightened when they were taken to Joseph's house. Joseph's steward spoke at the entrance to the house. He says, it's all right. Don't be afraid. It's all right. Don't be afraid. Your God, Elohim, interesting, he uses the name of their God again. Your God, Elohim, the God of your father, has given you treasure in your sacks. I received your silver. If you know the story, basically they pay for the, they pay for the um, grain. And then what happens is, as they're going home, Joseph's put their payment back in their sacks. And they think, why has that happened? Here it's, uh, he's saying, actually... I received your silver, but but yet you got your silver back, which is kind of half the story, but he's saying, the God of your father has given you treasure. Then he brought, then uh, Joseph brought Simeon, who'd stayed in Egypt, out to them. When Joseph came home, he presented him, they presented him the gifts they'd brought into the house, and they bowed down to him uh, on the ground. As he looked about and saw his brother Benjamin, he said, God be gracious to you, my brother. Deeply moved at the sight of his brother, Joseph hurried out and looked for a place to weep. After he's washed his face and came out and controlling himself, he said, serve the food. The men had been seated before him in in the order of their ages. I don't know whether he asked them to sit in age order or whether he just he just kind of like sat them in age order. You there, you there, you there. They must have thought, this is spooky. (laughs) They sat in age order from the firstborn, that'd be Reuben, to the youngest, and they looked at each other in astonishment. They obviously thought, what? This is strange. And then it says, when portions were served to them from Joseph's table, Benjamin's portion was five times as much as everyone else's. So they feasted and drank freely. It's interesting that we, we, we should notice here that this is, this is next, this is the next thing. After feeling bad, what's God's plan for salvation? He overwhelms you with mercy and grace. He does amazing good things to you. We, sh- we should notice here Joseph's goodness. His brothers were afraid. But yet, jo- his Joseph's servant says, the God of your father's given you treasure. There's kind of abundance there. And then he says, he says, I've put treasure in your sack. And then the next thing he offers them is this lavish meal. And it's not one of these nouveau cuisine restaurants where the prices are sky high and the food hides in the middle of your plate. I, I don't know if you've ever been to those. Uh, we went on a, a, an Elder's Day away. I mean, the, the, the hotel wasn't incredibly swanky, but the food was like this tiny, tiny amounts of like, it was, you know, a lovely lamb. It was like lamb steak, but it was like kind of that size. And then they'd hit a little pepper potato on the top and then swirled some sauce. I was like, 
how much is this? <laughs> now it wasn't that kind of, like this, it wasn't this kind of lavish meal. This is, this is a lavish meal. You've got to remember, this is a lavish meal in the middle of famine. They'd lived in famine, but yet they come to Joseph's house and they eat. And it says they all drank, eat, ate and drank freely. This is a slap-up dinner. You've had your treasure. Don't be afraid. Now come and eat. And then he he says to his brother, uh, uh, Benjamin, God is gracious. God be gracious to you. And he gives him five times. I don't know how much he ate. It's probably one of those meals where basically you're not, if you finish it, I think in Arab culture actually, if you finish the meal, it's supposed to be bad manners and they bring you more. I once went to the West Bank with a friend of mine this is before the Intifada, and, and it was quite a poor house we were in, and basically we thought it's polite to eat up your food. So you eat your food, and then they bring you some more, and then you eat that, and you think, and they bring you some more, and you think, no, 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 what's going on here? So we kind of basically, through the interpreter, we get talking to them, and they said, no, 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 it, it, we will give you food until you stop eating. <laughs> and it's like, okay, fine, thank you, it's been absolutely lovely. Uh, but what happened is, Jack Benjamin's got these piled up portions, it just came possible. It's a picture of God's goodness. Treasure undeserved. Graciousness instead of punishment. A lavish meal in the midst of famine. This is how God deals with us. This is how God deals with us. He deals with us when we're still aware of how guilty we feel. It's okay to say, yeah, I feel guilty. But actually, God's next step is not to say, right, come on, I'm going to screw you down until you feel really bad and repent. God lavishes his goodness on us. Paul, uh, The writer of the Hebrews says this. Hebrews 4 verse 16. The writer to the Hebrews says this, Let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence. So we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. It's interesting that the brothers were afraid to go to Joseph's throne, as it were. They were afraid to go to Joseph's room. They were afraid. But here, uh, the writer to the Hebrews says, Come on. Don't be afraid. Come close. Now, we've got much more reason to be afraid of God you know, I know we sing he's a loving father, but he's the judge of all the earth. We've much more reason to be afraid of God than they had to be afraid of Joseph. They were very aware of their sin. They thought they'd been put in prison once and God's judging them. They thought it's going to happen again. They're very aware of their sin. That's why they're afraid. And actually, if you're not aware of your sin, then you think, oh, God's just this cuddly little father. No, he's the judge of all the earth. You should be afraid. When people meet God in the Bible, the first thing that the angels or or Jesus says to them is is called the, uh, the angel of the Lord, says to them is what? Don't be afraid. Because we should be afraid. But actually, we're only afraid because we think God's bad. We only think that because we think he's only out to judge us. But no, he says, come Here, he says to them, come close. Come, have a lavish meal, come. And he he does that, he says, but the writer says, come and approach God's throne with confidence so that you may receive mercy. What's mercy? Mercy is when you don't get the punishment you deserve. In other words, you get let off. What's grace? Grace is you don't get the punishment you deserve and God says, here's treasure, come to my table. We're going to do that later, come to my table, pressed down, shaken together, more than you can eat, lavishly, freely, in the midst of famine, that's what God's like. You need to understand that. We need to understand that. And it's not like, oh, you understand that once when you become a Christian. 
You need to understand that all the time. I often, I was talking to my daughter, and she said, you know, I can get in my head that, that God's like always cross with me. I thought, I mm, wonder where she gets that from. Maybe because I'm an example of God to her as a father. You know, I, you know why didn't you get an A star? You only got an A? What's the matter with you? <laughs> Whatever, I'm confessing here. But, you know, you can always feel that God's never satisfied. That God's always going to judge you. He's always going to say, oh, come on, can you've done better. No, we need to understand God's grace is lavish, undeserved, unmerited. These are murderers, uh, uh, you know, slavery traffickers, and, and Joseph says, come and sit at my table. That's what God does for you. We are drawn by what uh, theologians call God's irresistible grace. It's so much that when God's grace comes to you, you think, I can't resist it. I can't resist it. It's not, you don't become a Christian by just thinking, well, I quite like Christians, and I'm not too busy on a Sunday morning. You know, and it seems like a reasonably good idea and whatever. I've not, you know, maybe I'll, I'll weigh it up. Do I do golf? Do I do Christianity? Ah, we'll do Christianity. It's not like that. What happens is when you become a Christian, God gets hold of you so much that it's almost like, I can't believe how good he is. There's nowhere else I'd rather be. There's no one else I'd rather be with. It's called God's grace. So that's the second move. First, the awareness of sin. Second, God's grace. This is God's plan for saving lives. This is your life as theirs. Scene four. Silver cup in Benjamin's sack. This is a picture of Judah grabbing uh, Joseph's robe. Let's read a couple of slides. Now Joseph gets, so they've had this meal, they get their grain, they put their silver, uh, uh, they give their silver, Joseph puts their silver back in their sack, so they're getting their grain for free, it's God's grace to them. Uh, But he does this interesting little kind of ruse. Now Joseph gave these instructions, put my cup, the silver one, in the mouth of the youngest ones, that's Benjamin's sack, along with the silver from his grain. As morning dawned, Joseph said to his steward, go after those men at once and say to them, why have you repaid good or grace or mercy with evil? Isn't this the cup my master drinks from and also uses for dreams interpretation? They must have thought, dreams interpretation, there's something going on here. Joseph's poking at them, trying to get them to understand what's going on. This is a wicked thing you've done. But they said to him, why would we steal uh, silver or gold from your master's house? If any of your servants is found to have it, he will die, die and the rest of us will become my Lord's slave. And then there's a bit of to do and it says, they open the cup, sacks one after another, it says, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. At this, the brothers tore their clothes and returned to the city. Tearing your clothes was an act of like, contrition of oh sadness deep sadness there's a different kind of sorrow here judah said to joseph god has uncovered your servant's guilt now in one sense it's a setup but actually this underlying guilt that they haven't dealt with is still there judah says god has uncovered your servant's guilt now we are the lord's slave and we ourselves we ourselves and the one who was found to have the cup but joseph said to them Far be it from me to do such a thing. Only the man who you found to have the cup will be my slave. There's a Garrett is again, slave. We've got silver and slaves and dreams. He's pressing them to deal with their stuff. The rest of you go back to my fa- to your father in peace. 
Then Judah went up to him and said, so he's done this kind of off-piste, as it were, pardon, let me speak a word to my Lord. Your servant, my, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One of them went away from me, and, he, and I said, surely he's been torn to pieces, and I've not seen him since. If you take this one, that's Benjamin, from me, and harm comes to him, you'll bring my grey head down to the grave in misery. And then Judah says, I guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I do not bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you, my father, all my life. Then please let your servant remain here as your Lord's slave in place of the boy and let him go free with his brothers. Judah was the one who, when they threw him in the pit, said, now let's not just kill him, let's sell him into slavery. This is remarkable transformation in Judah. It's a remarkable change. What's happened is the pressure and the guilt and the lavish grace of God has brought him to this point where he understands what's really going on. He understands something remarkable. Because what he does, and I emphasize it in the reading, he says, I will take the blame in his place. Joseph, putting his silver cup in Benjamin's sack, sets up this final transformation. And what's remarkable is what Judah does. Phil Moore, whose book really helped me in this, says this. Judah steps forward at this crucial junction in the story. He is the ancestor of Jesus. So he gets to foreshadow what his divine descendants would centuries later do. Redemption through an innocent substitute. Redemption just means freedom at a price. The price of an innocent substitute. Judah didn't have the cup. But he says, I will be a slave so that Benjamin can go free. Prefiguring the line of prefiguring the lion of the tribe of Judah, that's Jesus, he offers to redeem the life of Benjamin by laying down his own life so that the one that accused might be set free. And as he and he does it because he promised his father to save the one he loves. I will bear the blame before you, my father, said Jesus. Fillmore says, this is a picture of Jesus' death on the cross in our place. This is what's happening. It's almost like there's a, a the, the, the life of Joseph is this kind of play about the bigger picture. It, it's the one who, who bears the, 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 the blame. It's almost before eternity passed. Father and son, God the father and God the son, they agreed they agreed that Jesus would go to earth. He doesn't want to go to Egypt. He'd go to earth and he would die in our place. They made that agreement. They made that plan. And so he, so when, when Judah says, I agreed that I will bear the blame before you, my father, he's saying, I'm doing this because I love my father. And it's almost a picture of Jesus says, because I love my father, not your will, but my will be done. He goes to the cross and he lays down his life. And he's not laying down his life for Benjamin. He's laying down his life for us. It's amazing. This is the, the story. How does God save people? Yes, awareness of sin. Yes, lavish grace. But there comes a point where somebody needs to bear the blame. Isaiah 53, a famous verse, says it so brilliantly. It says, He, Jesus, I believe, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us 
peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep. They were all shepherds. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's absolutely beautiful. This is the greatest story of all. And I think that we can sit here as Christians and think, yeah, yeah, I know this. Can you give me some psychobabble, some inner thoughts about getting right with your brothers, forgiving your brothers? And I kind of thought about doing a sermon like that. You know, we fall out with our friends and family. Let's forgive our friends and family. I thought, well, but actually, no, this story cries out for the bigger story that you get forgiven by God. You get forgiven by God. This is God's costly plan. Judah stands, as it were, like Jesus, the one who will be his uh, descendant and says, I will bear the blame in your place. Last scene, then we're finishing break bread. Scene five. If if you're not getting this is Jesus' story through these sermons, this is it, all right? This is Jesus' story, and it's absolutely in his face with scene five. I've called it, I'm alive and Lord of all Egypt. Let's read. Genesis 45. Joseph could no longer contain himself. There's been three or four times where Joseph has like cried. I don't think he's, he's not just cried because he's seen his brothers. I don't think it's sentimental. I think he's cried because he's, he's felt the, the pain of their guilt. He's, he's cried because he knows that he can see that, that, that guilt has messed up their lives. And, and when, when they say the things they say, he has to go away and he cries. I think God cries. God cries about our brokenness. God cries about our sin. God cries that we just feel worldly sorrow and not godly sorrow. He, he's, he, he's sad about that. But there comes a point here for Joseph where Joseph can control himself no longer. He made himself known to his brothers. He wept so loudly that Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. They're like, whoa. They didn't like, hey, Joseph is a happy ending. It's a nice fairy story. They're terrified because he almost appears to them as like one from the dead. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I'm, I am your brother, Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourself for selling me here because it's to save lives that God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. That's a great phrase. Save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of Egypt's. I think Joseph's self-sacrifice, where he says, I'll, die, I'll put myself in your place, brings Joseph to tears. And the brothers, as I said, are terrified because they see him as one from the dead. But actually, here's this picture of Jesus. When Jesus rose from the dead, if you read it at the end of uh, Luke's Gospel, it said he appeared to them and they were afraid. They're like, whoa. They were afraid, afraid, they appeared to them. And it's like the same thing. It says they were, it's, it said they were terrified, they were petrified. They think he's come back from the dead. But actually, what does the one who's come back from the dead, the one who's dead, it says in Revelation about Jesus, I was dead, but now I'm alive. 
What, what does he do? He says these beautiful words. He says, come close to me. Come close to me. They were terrified, but he says, come close. He, re- he reveals who he is and says, come close. That's what God does. That's what Jesus does. When he reveals himself to us, he says, come close, come close. Will you come close? And it says, he, come close. I am your brother and I'm Lord of Egypt. It, it, later on in the chapter, it says, Pharaoh heard him weeping and said, tell your family to come to Egypt. Tell them that they, can, they don't need to bring any of their stuff because I'm going to give them all the riches of Egypt. Tell them they can come and bring their flocks and herd. I'm going to give them the best land. This is resurrection riches. We believe that, that when Jesus saves us, he doesn't just reveal himself to us and say you're forgiven. But actually what he does is he says, come close to me and I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you the best of all the land. Let's finish with two verses from the New Testament. Acts 2, Peter says this about Jesus. God has raised this Jesus to life, to which we are all witnesses. Exalted then to the right hand of God, He's received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and he's poured him out as you now see. What do we get? We don't necessarily get the best riches of Egypt financially. We don't necessarily get the best land. But when you come to Jesus, when you come to the risen Jesus, he says, I'm going to give you the best of who I am. He's going to pour out his spirit on our lives. Paul writes in Ephesians, and God raised us up with Christ. Just like Joseph was raised up and seated on high, God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order in the, that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to you in Christ Jesus. For it's by grace you are saved through faith, and this is not of yourself, it's a gift of God. This is God's way for saving lives, this is God's plan. He wants to make you aware of your sin. He wants to lavish his goodness and grace on you. He, wants, he will and he has died in your place. And he wants you to know who he is, to come close to him, so he wants to pour all his goodness and riches in your life. And if this story has become too familiar for you, I don't want it to be. This is the big story. This is the big story. And for some of you, you may never have you may never have been said to God, I'm, I'm sorry for my sin. You might just live with the guilt and the messed up stuff. Some of you might feel sorry that you found out and just hope to move on and hope things are going to die down and you've never dealt with your sin. You might call yourself a Christian, but you've really, you haven't dealt with it. But when you, the way you deal with the sin is that God invites you to the table. He says, come and taste the goodness. They ate and drank and were happy. They fed. He he says, let God be gracious to you. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.